0: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher even if they don't. Today is July the 5th, 2016, and this is episode 1820 of the Survival Podcast. And, uh, this is a Tuesday show, so it's a Just Jack show. We didn't have a Monday show today because Monday was the 4th of July where we celebrate waving flags and eating hot dogs and uh, no, 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 no. Make no mistake about it, my friends. The 4th of July should be a celebration of insurrection, tax evasion. That's, that's, that's what we're celebrating. Treason. That's what we're celebrating on the 4th of July in the most positive way, by the way. What happened to the spirit that created the original 4th of July? I know not, but that's one of the things that we seek to regain here at the Survival Podcast. But today we're not going to be talking about politics or revolution or anything like that. Tuesdays, as you know, my dear friends, has now changed into the show that you vote for. See, I got tired of having all these things people vote for that don't count. thought, maybe I can let people actually have a voice and vote for something where their vote does count. And I set up polls, and every month we run polls for the next month. And I put up, you know, if there's going to be eight Mondays, or eight Mondays, get a month of eight Mondays, something's wrong. Anyway, four Mondays or five Mondays in a month, usually one or the other. I put up the double the number and show. Up. So four Mondays, eight, five Mondays, ten. And then you guys vote, and whichever one wins usually goes first and second and so on. And then the other four, uh, if it's the first time and they did okay, they they get rerun. Uh, for another vote, if they don't make it, they get washed out. If they do really bad or they've been run before, we wash them out and come up with new topics. So if you don't like the topics, go vote, because your vote does count at the Survival Podcast Forum. And today's winning topic is 15 items for the prepper kitchen and how to use them. Uh, I was actually surprised that this item won, I, 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 or this uh, that this show actually came in number one. I should say. I I thought maybe it would make the cut. If I don't think it's going to make the cut, I don't even put it up there. But I thought it would be one one of the ones that might end up toward the bottom of the heat. But this one won by a landslide. Absolute landslide. So you guys are interested. I'm glad you are. Um, Cooking is, to me, the quintessential modern survival topic. And the items I'm going to give you today, it's not like an exhaustive list of everything you have to have in your kitchen. And there's certainly things... Not on the list that you probably have in your kitchen and you wouldn't want to do without. But these are items over the years that I've personally found uh, to make my life as a cook better and to do a lot of good things for me at a good value-to-cost ratio. And they are all things that I would not want to have not in my kitchen. And I'll tell you more about that in a bit when we get into it with that. Let's go ahead and take a look at the year that was the episode before we get into today's topic. 1820, we have Liberia means liberty. We have the Missouri Compromise, means slavery. And we have Joseph Smith's first vision. And in other news, we have the U.S. Land Act lowers the minimum price for land. This encourages the settlement of the Northwest Territory. Yeah, guys, I think people don't realize how hard our government was working to get people to go. Take land, do something. We have to settle this place. We have all this land now, and there's nobody there. Go. Um, Antarctica is discovered, sort of. Several explorers claim to have spotted it. And the statue of Venus de Milo is discovered. It was buried in the ruins of the ancient city of Milos. Uh, Venus de Milo is one of those iconic images that almost everybody has seen, but maybe not everybody can recognize. But when I tell you what it is, you'll go, oh yeah, I've seen that. And I know it's supposed to be an important work of art. It's a topless woman with no arms. And now you know exactly what I'm talking about if you didn't already know, don't you? That's, That's an iconic image. That really is. I'm going to read for you today... The Missouri Compromise means slavery, and I'm going to do it mainly because I love Alex's take on this one. After the Louisiana Purchase, Congress has been debating whether future states should be admitted as free or slave. The debate has come down to politics and economics. If both Maine and Missouri are accepted as free, the northern industrial states will have a clear majority and use their power to set excise taxes that will kill the South's agrarian economy. The Congress is deadlocked, so they agree to compromise. Maine will be accepted into the Union as a free state this year, and next year Missouri will be accepted as, as a slave state. The Congress has kicked the can down the road, because that never happens, right? Um, but this road leads to the American Civil War. It didn't start out as a Civil War, but it became one fairly quickly. It just It's just like Britain voting to exit the European Union in June 2016, uh British exit vote or Brexit it could be called many things but it's not a civil war nevertheless the european union is debating whether to punish the uk or not i doubt there will be war but there will be a lot of finger pointing and name calling in the future my take by alex shrugged okay Why couldn't the southern states transition to a wage-based economy? Slavery was so big that they did not have enough money to maintain a slave and paid worker economy side-by-side as they transitioned. It meant financial ruin for a lot of slave owners and a lot of elderly slaves who were counting on Social Security. Oops, I mean, they were counting on slave masters. Indeed, Social Security must fail at some point because there are not enough young people paying taxes to finance the retirement of their parents. The honest solution is to stop collecting the taxes from their paychecks and tell them the government's out of the retirement business. Yet those near retirement do not have enough money to provide for an alternative solution like the old South slavery economy. We cannot afford to pay current social security recipients while not taxing younger workers. The solution seems simple. The government controls a lot of land. Give elderly people 40 acres and a mule, so to speak, they can live on the land or sell it and go on vacation, whatever free the slaves before it's too late. Um, Beautiful, beautiful analogy from the past to modern day. Um, I believe that when you force somebody to give up the fruits of their labor, you have, in fact, put them in a type of slavery. And just like slaves, we have become dependent on the master who takes our property. And that is an incredible analogy, so accurate, so spot on that Alex came up with it, that I don't have my take today. Alex's take is my take. And the more things change, the more they stay the same. With that, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day. We'll get right into today's topic Hey, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, you know I love to cook. And my go-to source for spices, seasoning, sauces, and information is Chef Keith Snow's site, HarvestEating.com. Give Chef Keith a try, and you'll see why I use his products at least a few times every single week in my own kitchen. You can learn more at HarvestEating.com. Com. Hey, would you like to do business with other members of the TSP community? If so, check out the TSP Business Directory, the place for our listeners to promote their businesses or find great products and services from other community members. Check there first when you need something, and remember to leave a review when you do business with a member. The directory is all about trust and value for value exchange. Check out tspbiz.com, that's tspbi to learn more. All right, so as I said, I, I'm actually kind of excited about today's show because I, I love cooking. Um, there's nights where it gets pretty late before I start cooking, and my wife's like, well, you don't have to cook tonight. We could do something else or whatever, and I'm like, I don't mind. I, I enjoy it. It's one of those things that lets the creative process loose, and I think if you don't, if you don't marry yourself to other people's recipes – if you take recipes as guidelines and ideas then every time you cook it can be a little bit different than last time and i think that is part of like the excitement i think it's like why people like to other than just the enrichment part you know pan for gold because you never know when a nugget's going to show up or you know it, it, taking all of the the money out of it. one of the things my wife and i love to do when we go on vacation we walk the beach and we look for cool seashells now all we do with them is bring them home in bags and put them in this little area in our backyard. We don't really pay attention to the individual ones at all. But while you're searching for them, the hunt itself has this, this, this value in human minds. And I think that's back to our hunter-gatherer ancestry, our DNA, that finding that ripe berry or that perfect nut was finding the sustenance for our lives. And it's ingrained in us to always quest for something new. And it's what makes us successful as a species. So even that way, it's kind of a survival topic because it's, it's, it's reaching into our roots But cooking might be the most relevant of all modern survival topics in our daily lives. The benefits to cooking and knowing how to do it well are numerous, they're real, they're relevant, and frankly, they're immediate. There's not a lot of things in life that we get that much out of. Think about cooking this way. Instead of just like it's, you know, it's it's making dinner, right? Cooking is the preparation or preservation of food. That's what cooking is. Now, If you are a survivalist, one of the key things that you store is food, right? Because if you don't eat, you die. I mean, it is that simple. So what can be more germane to the survivalist mindset than both the preparation for consumption and the preservation to ensure future consumption of your food? So it is so spot on as a survival topic that way, but it's even more relevant to our daily survival and long-term welfare than that. Because it has these immediate and long-term positive impacts on not just you know our ability to feed ourselves, but our wallets and our health. If you show me a family that eats out five times a week, I'll show you one bleeding money. Plain and simple. It doesn't mean that they don't have money. They might be very wealthy, but they are, they are literally pissing money away. If you show me a family that eats processed food five times a week, I'll show you one destroying their health. Do you realize, folks... Many of you may not realize this because you live around sane people and you don't really associate with insane people, but there are some households that no one ever actually cooks anything. I know of families where 100% of food is either restaurant, takeout, or delivery. I'm serious about that. What I'm saying when I say nobody cooks, I mean nobody even pulls out a box of Kraft macaroni and cheese, as dreadful as it is, dumps the noodles into a pot of boiling water, stirs in the powdery crap, and makes that. They literally do not cook. The refrigerator is empty, except for like you know maybe soda pops and things you can just pull out and eat. And every meal comes from somebody else preparing it. And I can understand in some instances how it all happens. Some of it's time based and not knowing how to uh, how to cook efficiently. But that's something that can be overcome. Overall, I think for some people, cooking is intimidating. as more and more households have relied more and more on. Pre-processed, pre-cooked, pre-made crap and eating out, less and less time has been spent between parents and children saying, this is how you cook. And as more and more kids, you know, become wired all the time, they're, they're far less interested in cooking. Food just magically shows up. So we're not instilling the value, and I mean the, the, the moral value of, of, you know, being proud of being able to prepare your own food in people anymore. We're not, and, and kids aren't experiencing the fun. So even when they come back around to wanting to cook, what happens is it's intimidating. And what have we taught people in the last two, three generations? Not to mess up, right? No, you don't want to mess up. You think about it. If you're an older person like me from like the third, fourth generation back, one of the frustrations we've had in management and and, and company ownership roles with this younger generation, this millennial generation, is, you give them something to do and even if they're a good hard working person they get to a point where they've done it and then they stop or they get to a point where they haven't been given another instruction and they stop and why they're afraid they're afraid they'll mess it up so how do you get over that with cooking here's a secret it's a real it's a secret listen very carefully it's a real secret shh here it is here it is this is how you get over it get the f over it done And Just drive on. That's it. That's the whole secret. It's cooking. You're not going to blow the earth up. You're not going to let Pinky and Brain take over the earth. You're fine. Just freaking cook. Do the best you can, get over it, and drive on. To this day, and I've been cooking since I was a teenager, a lot, because I had to take care of myself as a teenager, um, I still occasionally screw something up. I'll overcook something. I'll make it too spicy for my wife. I, and I don't, I'm the guy that like, when I serve something and like I have to serve it because I messed it up somewhat, but uh, you know, I burned it a little because I got distracted or whatever while we were talking, uh, something like that. And people say, well, it's still great. I'm like, no, let's not say that. Let's not, let's not say that it's better than it is. In the end, I just want to say, okay, I, me- I messed up. That's fine. Duly noted. Don't do that again and move on. If you take that attitude, cooking gets really easy. Because then you can make all your mistakes really quick and then you figure out how not to do them again. Or you know what to go find out. Like I tried to make this and it didn't work out. Let me go look at what cooks do that make this thing that comes out great and figure out why. Because maybe I put all the ingredients in, but I put them in the wrong order. So with all of that in mind, what I wanted to do today though was look at 15 items for your kitchen. How to use them and how they fit into making great food at home storing food for the future and enjoying it all at the same time. I'm going to start out with some general thoughts. I have 15 items that I have specific recommendations for. Uh, Like, this is the item. There's a link in the show notes. Every item, instead of in the resources today, when you see my 15 items for review, every item where it's listed, it's linked. You click on it, it opens a new window right to Amazon so you can see it. I'm not saying go buy that uh, item in Amazon, but if you want to, I greatly appreciate it. My affiliate links are there. Um, but what I want you to know is exactly what I'm talking about so that if you're going to go out and find it or find an equivalent, you know, like my base level of what I rely on now with, with like one exception here, because I have different things and this was the closest match I could find, um, with one exception, I own every single item linked to in the show notes, every single one of them. And that's because my view is if I wouldn't spend my money on it, I'm not going to recommend you spend your money on it. And even the one here that I don't own today, which is basically a couple of cutting boards I mentioned, they are the equivalent of cutting boards I own, and I couldn't find the exact cutting boards that I own. All right, So that's that's the way that I'm coming at this today. But my, my general thoughts here, I want to start with pots and pans because I have no specific recommendations for you know, those to you in the show notes today. But I just gotta go real quick over my pots, pans, you know, uh, viewpoint. Number one, I use cast iron for most frying and searing, and everything that I do on a general basis. If I decide, you know what I'm gonna do, I'm going to uh, grab some uh, some pork loin, cut it real thin, and I'm gonna hammer it with some high heat, and put some flavoring on it, and then maybe uh, you know fry up a little bit of uh, I don't know. Uh, uh, snow peas and uh, thin, thin, slid, slid, thin slivered carrots and zucchini, and hit that with like a little uh, like an Asian style sauce or something. I'm gonna fry that pork loin in a cast iron skillet. If I'm gonna cook a couple eggs in the morning, I'm gonna cook them in a cast iron skillet. My cast iron's old. We've been through all this before, so I'll just say I believe in going to, to you know antique malls and whatever, finding the best condition old sk- cast iron you can find that's completely smooth and milled. And then rehabbing it. And I'll put a link to Paul Wheaton's article on how to do that today. But that's, that's cast iron. And I use it for stovetop cooking searing, and occasionally things like if I'm going to do duck breasts and I'm going to sear it, I'm going to go right from the top of the, 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 the stove into the oven in the same pan. I use cast iron for that. I do have some modern cast iron. I have a very big Lodge skillet for a larger one. I have yet to find a really large cast iron skillet in my mall, uh, antique mall shopping, that really was like one that I was willing to pay the money for and rehab. And it works well for what I do because I use those bigger ones for things like searing meat and baking them where my smaller skills I'm using for more things like eggs and stuff that will stick. And when you get cast iron uh, seasoned right, it, it defies anything your non-stick pans can do. Uh, for making soups, making stocks, boiling things, whatever, I use stainless steel. And the brand we have for our stainless steel cookware is Cuisinart. And the reason we have that is Dorothy is really good about when there's bonus things where you save stamps or whatever at different grocery stores. And a long time ago, when we were really ramping up our prepping stuff, um, Kroger, no, Albertsons, was doing a thing where you save these things and you got Cuisinart, Cuisinart cookware. So she got, like, all of our Cuisinart cookware for basically free. So that's why we have Cuisinart. But it was good quality, heavy bottom. Um... Look for that's. I mean, when you pick up stainless steel cookware, if it doesn't seem heavy for its size, it's wrong. And in most instances, that's a good enough gauge with your stainless steel cookware. Uh, it costs more, but it's worth it. We use non stick pans for large frying jobs that would otherwise stick. If I'm going to make, uh, you know, six eggs with some peppers and onions and some sausage. And make for tacos for myself, Dorothy, and maybe two other people that are over to the house for breakfast tacos. Cast iron skillet, right? My little cast iron skillet's perfectly seasoned. If if I have you know six, eight, ten people to cook eggs for, and I, I you know I need a bigger pan, and I just want to make sure I don't have any issues, I'll go to a nonstick skillet. That's about all I use it for. I will occasionally use nonstick skillets for things like sautéing vegetables and things like that. But generally, it's because I have two really nice cast iron skillets, and there's something in them and I need another pan, and I don't use stainless steel for that because it's more likely to stick. Uh, I know you can supposedly season stainless steel and all, but there's a point when you've got enough pans going, you need one less thing to worry about. So if I had two things on my two cast iron skillets and I needed to saute up something else that I didn't have room for, I'll pull out the nonstick. But this is why I'm not big on the nonstick stuff for trying to find the best one. I don't use it much. So if I buy a mid quality cast iron. Uh, I'm sorry a nonstick skillet it'll probably last me for you know years and years so what I look for again though thick metal heavy bottom good coating decent reviews on Amazon and I'll talk about the reviews on Amazon in a second when I get to the end of this one um, the next one though is crock pots and slow cookers I didn't really recommend a crock pot or a slow cooker um, I don't use them a lot. I use them more for holding temperature than cooking. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. Why? Um, and I use them for large quantities of food that need to be served to lots of people, like at our workshops and all. We use them for th- things like we had the family over yesterday. We had a whole bunch of – my fam- my my house was beyond capacity for indoors yesterday. And uh, we had you know the big crock pot out to make queso, which is basically like Velveeta, Rotel, and Wolf Chili which I didn't eat a lot of because I'm kind of not the guy that eats that stuff anymore. But the family likes it. We put it out. It's good for stuff like that. It's good for soups. It's good for stews. But I'll talk about why I feel a little differently about that, like I said, in just a second. But I want to go real quick and tell you why brand is not really that important to these things for me. In the end, they are all containers that get hot that hold food. You either have really good, good enough, or shitty. And it's usually easy to figure out what the shitty is. And if you go to Amazon and you start looking at the reviews of like let's say nonstick skillets, you know like a, a 12 inch skillet nonstick, you'll see like 70% all the good brands will be like 70, 80 percent will be four and five star reviews and you'll always see you know five, ten percent of one and two star reviews and they'll always say things like the coating wore off, the pan warped, etc. The thing is you have no idea that that person actually used the product the way they said that they did. Because I have yet to warp a nonstick pan and I have a high-end gas, uh, gas stove. Right? So, to me, that concept is maybe they let it sit where, where it was like cooking longer than it should have. Maybe they, they scrubbed the nonstick thing with, with, you know, steel wool or something. I don't know, but I know that a lot of those piss poor reviews on Amazon are not to be trusted. Some are, and I'll mention one today that saved me from making a big mistake. Where it was the minority in the negative. And you, so you always have to read these negative reviews, whether it's Amazon or anywhere else online, with an understanding of people do stupid shit. Um, also, <laughs> I gotta share that. If you heard the clicking in the background, a turkey just tried to get in the window of my office. Um, it just got on the ledge and fell off. The dog went after him. Uh, you can't get him from inside, Charlie. Anyway, uh, you'll be cooked one day, by the way. Anyway, um, you you have to take in the totality like what do you think what do you understand what what is your experience and is what this person's saying making sense to you and every product occasionally has a lemon all right now in the crock pots and slow cookers this is why i've i've um not been huge on using them lately i also with my cast iron have you know several dutch ovens i have a lodge big old you know just straight-up cast-iron Dutch oven. I have a little bit smaller enameled uh, Cuisinart one that has like the red enamel on the outside and the white on the inside. Um, And I do a lot of my slow cooking in the oven. And I do that because I have precision control. If I want to cook that item at 250 degrees, I can set it to 250. I want it at 275, 275. I want it at 300, 300. I want it 283 degrees. I can set it there. Not that I would, but you get my point low, high, you know, keep warm, these settings on most crock pots. Um, what happens is there's a lot of kind of ups and downs with a crock pot. And you'll see a lot of times when you're cooking things like or if you're doing queso or whatever, you have to really watch it cuz you know, it'll it'll melt everything seems nice. You had it on low, but if it's there long enough, all of a sudden you start getting burning and sticking around the top. The converse is, if your oven's occupied with other things, crock pots are great to throw beans in, to throw, you know, meat for a roast, stews, whatever. I'm not putting them down, I'm just saying in general, if I'm making a stew, and I want it to cook for a long time at a certain temperature, I make it in my Dutch oven. That means I put it on top of my range, I do all my browning, I brown the meat, I brown the onions, I make the mirepoix, all of that good stuff. And then, you know, when I put everything back in and I'm ready to let it cook, either into a stew or to a pot roast or whatever, put the lid on it, stick it in the oven, I have precision control. I have absolute precision control. So I kind of prefer that to uh, to uh, crock pots for most things. And then the last thing I kind of skipped over, I missed it. When it comes to roasting pans, I'm going to put a chicken in the oven and roast it. I use stainless steel for that, also Cuisinart. Um, because, again, Dorothy got all of it for free. I think I bought one... Pot one Cuisinart product to match the set, and uh, so we got the whole set for the price of one. As far as I was concerned, all right. So my 15 items. My first one, and this was recently an Amazon item of the day, is the Shard electric pressure cooker and canner. I, I think that pressure cooking does amazing things for tough pieces of meat to tenderize them. With the electric pressure cookers, you can steam, you can cook rice. You can take if you want to make mashed potatoes. You can rapidly pressure cook potatoes and then turn them into mashed potatoes. There's so many things you can do with an electric pressure cooker. But I'll be honest, that's not what I use my electric pressure cooker for. I don't believe in electric pressure cookers only because there are now two products, right? And the Shard is the one I, I now recommend because it has greater capacity for the size of jars for canning. And the uh, the the first one is the. Um, It's the first one we bought. What's it called now? The uh, Power Pressure Cooker, Power Pressure Cooker XL. Um, This has been in tons of infomercials. They now make it in larger sizes. There's like an 8, a 10, a 12-quart, whatever. Here's the problem with the Power Pressure Cooker. Here's two problems with it. Even though I like it, I still have it. I'm not getting rid of it. I'm not going to throw it away. I just have two now. Uh, The Power Pressure Cooker is not very tall, so quart jars won't fit in it. So even though it says 8-quart capacity, you can't put 8-quart jars in it, nor can you put 4-quart jars in it. What you can put is 4-pint jars in it. And there's plenty of headroom then, but not enough to make the quart jars go in. So when they made it bigger, I thought, well, that's great, that's nice, and, you know, it didn't happen. The other problem is the petcock. And those of you that have ever seen a pressure cooker or pressure canner go, and you see it like it rocks, it psh, 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 psh. that's a pet cock. And, and it, the one in the Power Pressure Cooker XL is like a built-in integrated one, um, and it's it's designed for regular pressure canning at lower altitudes. So if you live above, I think it's 1,200 or 2,000 feet, something like that, you can't use it for pressure canning. The Shard has solved both of these problems by being taller. It will hold um, quart jars, so you can can quart jars, four quart jars. And uh, it also has different pet cocks of different weights so that if you are at higher elevation, you just increase the weight, that increases the pressure. So it does everything your your standard old-school pressure canners that sit on your, your stovetop and heat your kitchen up in the summertime when you're canning all your vegetables would do. Uh, so it's great for that. It Though with that greater capacity, with all the soups, stews, etc. I make, all we do is make a double batch every time. And usually if we do that, Half of it will easily fit into four quart jars, and that means every time we make a stew, every time we make a soup, every time we make a stock, we can make a double batch, can half of it. And it becomes so simple and so easy and not a lot of work. And that's why I love it, and that's how I recommend you use it. The next product, I've talked about cast iron an awful lot, an awful lot. This product is called The Ringer. I love the ringer. There's other knockoffs off of it now, but none of them are inexpensive enough that I'd say don't buy the original, the ringer. What the ringer is, is a little piece of chainmail. Like think knights of old, right? Like fighting and jousting and stuff like that. They had their big armor, and then under their, their heavy armor, they had a lighter chainmail armor. It looks like that. It's essentially what it is. Stainless steel chainmail armor. It's eight by six inch, inches, and what you use it for is cleaning your cast iron and it does a fantastic job of taking anything stuck on your cast iron off. The primary way that I use it when I'm done cooking with my cast iron cookware, if I've cooked something where there is residue, I usually just take it and I rinse it out and I throw it back on the thing and I turn it on till it's hot. And then I either dump water in it or I pick it up with a potholder and I Run it under my faucet, and that action is like a deglazing action when you're cooking. It releases almost everything, and I'll rinse it out with that. And I'll take my ringer, and you got to be careful, make sure you've cooled it down, enough you're not going to burn yourself. And I just scrub it out with my ringer and wash it out again. And then I take a dry cloth and wipe it out, and I throw it back on the on the stove. I turn the heat back on, I heat it up, I add a little bit of oil, spread the oil all over it, let it get hot, kill the heat. Let it cool. Wipe out the excess oil. Oil. When I say oil here, I mean fat. Baking grease that you have reserved, which I never use season. My cast iron skillet with baking grease is too valuable for cooking. But lard I'll use. I'll use peanut oil, coconut oil, whatever happens to be handy. Probably whatever I just used. I don't use butter for this because it smokes low point and it turns brown and all that stuff. Okay. doesn't mean I'll cook with butter. It means I don't use it for seasoning. But if you use this tool, it is fantastic. I'll tell you another little tip with uh, maintaining your cast iron, especially your new cast iron that's not milled smooth as you're seasoning it. And you can get non-milled cast iron to be almost as good as old school cast iron if you use it long enough. But one of the great ways to scrub your cast iron and actually use an abrasive and get things off of it like the ringer, but not eliminate all of the patina that you're laying down for your coating, is just coarse salt. I'll just take coarse salt and I'll you know once I have it as clean as it'll get without using more aggressive means and I'll sprinkle while it's still damp coarse salt on it like you're using comet powder right for scrubbing an old school sink and then use the ringer with that and it just i mean I'm talking like my newer lodge stuff it just takes all of the stuff that's stuck that doesn't want to come out yanks it right out, season it move on with your life the ringer twelve ninety nine with free shipping on Amazon link in the show notes um, the next product is a product that I now use at least a couple times a week. And when I originally got it, I didn't think I really needed it. I have always used lemon zest in my cooking. And I've always used small amounts of, like, hard cheeses, like Parmesan, etc., uh, as, like, you know, sprinkling on the top of foods and stuff like that. I mean, what's better than to get real Parmesan Reggiano and you have, like, grilled vegetables and then you just grate a little bit of cheese on top of there, fresh grated, real from Italy, it's got the saltiness, it's awesome, right? Or to use citrus zest. Like the new way that I'm, I'm, almost every time I make a chicken now, this is what I'm doing. I take the chicken, I butterfly it, and I loosen the skin so you can get your hand up under the skin, and I make a seasoning out of lemon zest, black pepper, salt, thyme, rosemary, garlic, and onion, all dried versions thereof. And I put that in the coffee grinder, grind it up, and I stuff it up under the skin, Little salt, pepper, onion, garlic, paprika on the top of the skin, just a little bit sprinkled to, so as it crisps up nice and then you cook that, it's beautiful. Well, what I've always used is just a small little cheese grater for my lemon zest and for my lime zest and orange zest and stuff like that. Well, Sandy, who used to, who's several times has cooked here for us with our staff at our events, one of the last times she came, she brought one of these microplane zester graters. It looks like a rasp. I mean, it looks like something you use in wood shop, the way it, it's designed. And I was like, well, I always just use a cheeseburger. She was like, you'll like this. So I'm like, "Yes, yeah, sure, I'll try it. It's fantastic. And what it really does with zesting for your cooking is when you zest a piece of citrus, you want as much of the color as you can take with as little as the white as possible. And it takes such a fine layer off. You can use it real quick and zest your your fruit and get just the part of the zest you're looking for, and none of the bitter pith. And that makes it fantastic in of itself. The other thing it does is if you hold it, so you hold the the fruit in your left hand, you if you're right-handed here, obviously, and you hold this, this uh, zester in your right, and you turn it upward so you're, you're pushing down on the fruit, it's got a little channel. And all the zest just sits in that little channel. And then wherever you want it, you just... You know, put it over there like if you want to put it in a jar for a marinade or something, you stick your finger and poof, and it all goes right in. No funnel, no nothing. And you keep control of it. It doesn't make a mess. It doesn't spill. It doesn't go everywhere. It's fantastic for that. You know, we make a lot of like our own spirits as well. We'll make lemon shallow, which is basically a lemon schnapps, a very high proof, wonderful lemon schnapps. And we make it with the fuel that accidentally falls in your mouth. You know, so it's higher proof. And uh, so we make that in little jars. So instead of like, you know, transferring it to a plate and then scraping it in, you just, you know, zest your lemons and boom, and it goes. Orange zesting for making meads, things like that. Uh, it, you know, between cooking and mead making uh, and spirit making, we use this thing a couple times a week. And it's just fantastic. It cleans up easy. It's called the Microplane 420, so 40020, classic zester grater. $10.45 of free shipping on Prime. Again, link in the show notes if you're driving. Don't worry about this exhaustive list. Uh, but that is a fantastic product. The next product is, again, we're back to using it with uh, specifically for cast iron. And I have to give credit where credit is due. I've always used metal spatulas with my cast iron. Whatever metal spatula I could find I thought was a good spatula. Paul Wheaton told me, you want this Dexter Russell 4-inch, uh, Stainless steel spatula that's called a pancake turner. This is what you want for your cast iron. And I'm like, no, Paul, that's just marketing, using his own words against him. But I'm like, you know, I'll try anything. The key with this, and you can probably find other ones that that have this, most uh, metal spatulas have sharp corners. So every time you're scraping the pan or whatever with the edge, you're also somewhere at some time getting that sharp pointed edge and you're digging a groove in your cast iron when your whole goal with your cast iron is to get it and keep it smooth. You want every little nook and cranny filled in with these different bits of fat and cooking. Basically, you're, you're making a natural polymer over time with cast iron. So you're damaging the polymer where that ringer thing I just talked about of the salt is not aggressive enough to actually cut into the polymer uh, the, the the sharp pointed edge of a spatula is. This thing is thin metal, that's going to reduce how hard you push, and it has rounded corners, and that is a wooden handle. And that means unlike my other one, it's very similar to this, and actually does have rounded corners with a plastic handle. If you're not thinking about it and lean it on the side of the uh the pan for too long, it won't melt. And uh this this highly sophisticated tool is fifteen bucks with free shipping on Amazon. Again, it's called a Dexter Russell four by two and a half inch stainless steel and walnut pancake turner. And this isn't if, I, if you read the article that Paul wrote, you'll see that he specifically lists this product there. And I want to give credit to him because it's where I found out about it. And I think if you're going to do cooking with cast iron skillets, now if you're doing Dutch oven and something, none of this matters. But if you're going to be cooking with cast iron or you're going to need a spatula, this is the best one you can get, not just for the money, but of anything that's out there. And uh, it is really an awesome tool, and it's cheap. And I won't use anything else on my cast iron now. So my little plastic one with a bent, it gets gets used for like turning stuff uh, on the grill. Or occasionally, if I forgot about the other one and it's like in the drawer or in the dishwasher or something like that, and I put an egg in the skillet without thinking about it, I'll grab whatever metal spatula is around, usually the other plastic handle one, and I'll use it for that. But I like this little pancake turner, and I just call it a spatula. The next one I have for you today is made by Guy Fieri, and it is the Signature... Um, granite mocajete with a long pestle. Some of you are going, what the heck is a mocajete? A molcajete and I have two. I have this one made by Guy Fieri, and I have a, a real one from Mexico, right, made in the traditional way. And I'll tell you the difference, and I'll tell you why I now do not recommend the original traditional one. The original traditional ones are made from basically lava rock. A big, giant hunk of carved lava rock, like you put in old-school gas grills, lava rock. Uh, Like something we use for landscaping. It's got a bunch of little porous holes, and it's very very abrasive. Uh, You can pick one up and rub it on your arm and rub skin off your arm with them. That's how abrasive they are. And that's why traditional peoples use them as a molcajete. A molcajete is basically a giant mortar and pestle. We put stuff in it, and then we take the pestle that's made out of the same material, and we use it to smash it and grind it and move it around. Okay, when I learned about these things, I'm like, I want one. So I researched and I found the very best, you know, native stone-cut, Mexican-made, molcajete I could get my hands on, and it does exactly what it's supposed to do. It's also a pain in the ass, because all kinds of little bits of food get down in those holes, and they stay down in those holes, and then they stinketh and they rotteth. And eventually in time you build up kind of a patina in your mocajete that is a lot like um the patina on cast iron and it stops it stops being a problem. And I'm not gonna say that it would ever be a health concern or anything like that, but it just it doesn't really stink, to be honest. But you just see food down in there and I'm not one of these crazy nutcases with cleanliness. Like, I mean, there's a lot of professional chefs that probably have a horrific fit if they saw the way I cook and, oh, you touched that and uh, stop it. But when I can see leftover residue pieces of food on something I'm going to prepare, specifically I'm not going to cook in it. I'm going to prepare ingredients in it that will never be cooked or already were cooked like a molcajete does. I'm not happy about it. Now, original molcajetes were mostly used to stone grind corn. So if you're stone grinding dry corn, this doesn't really matter. But today what they're mostly used for is not grinding spices and and cornmeal and stuff like that because we have other ways to do that that work better. What they're used for today is, is for things like making fresh salsa. And that's where this tool shines because if you just want to grind up some, you know, uh, with a mortar and pestle, you want to do, like, some peppercorns, so they're coarse, or you want to do some clove, or you want, to do some, uh, you want to toast some cumin seed, and you don't want to grind it with a spice grinder. You're just going to mash it up. A little small, like olive wood mo- uh, mortar and pestle is all you need. How much of that are you going to do? This is a big thing. Like, this is heavy. It's made out of granite, the Guy Fietti one. Salsa. So this is how you use these to make, like, the best salsa you'll ever make. You fire your grill up, or you fire up, like, your big uh, cast iron uh, griddle, on your stovetop, you cut some tomatoes in half, you put them on there. You cut some jalapenos or serranos or whatever, how much heat you want, peppers in half, you put them on there. Maybe you cut yourself up one onion, cut it in half, put it on there, salt this when you do A little bit of salt on all of it, salt it, take a cob of corn, set it on there. Uh, maybe take some green onion and set it on there. So you just have it all on the grill. You just turn it. You're not trying to really cook it that much. You're just trying to, to get a little bit of color on the outside, warm it up a little bit. And then you just take your tomatoes. And your jalapeno, you start with your peppers. You throw your peppers in there, seeded or unseeded, depending on how hot you want it. And you kind of you just work that with your pestle. You throw your onions in there, and you do that. Uh, your green onions, you do that. Like Your stuff that takes a little more work to to, to to break up first, in there you do that. Then you throw your tomatoes in last, and you just basically make a great, big, fresh, amazing salsa. You chop a little fresh cilantro. You drop it in there. You take your corn. You take your chef's knife. We'll talk about it in a bit. You cut the corn off the cob. You don't need a special tool for getting corn off a cob. If you do, something's wrong with you, or you're doing a thousand cobs. Okay. If you're just going to be cutting corn off a couple of cobs, a freaking chef's knife is all you need. You cut the corn off because you don't want to grind the corn up. You drop that in there. You really want to do it up a little bit. Throw a little a couple of tablespoons of black, be- uh, black beans in there. Amazing salsa. Amazing, amazing salsa. And that doesn't just have to be used like. Salsa and chips, right? That can be done on top of like a carne asada steak, or or whatever you want to do. Uh, like a, if you do a salad with like grilled chicken, and you take that to the kind of the Mexican side, you use that as a salad dressing, and you can control your heat. You guys grow lots of chilies. So you can do all kinds of things with this. It is fantastic. There's other things you can do with it, but it's the it's making the salsa, specifically making the grilled vegetable salsa. That nothing else really can do this because if you try to make a salsa like that with like a food processor or by cutting it up by hand, it just won't be the same. It, it's the one thing this will do better than anything else. This thing's thirty bucks plus free shipping on Amazon Prime, and I don't know how the hell they ship it for free, because if nothing else, you can keep this you know somewhere in your house for a nice pretty display, and when somebody comes and tries to rob your house. If you don't have your gun on you or whatever, you can pick this stuff and hit them in the head with it, and they will die. It is that heavy. The pestle alone, I think you could get that across the room and take somebody out with it. Uh, so how they ship that free by weight, I I just can't tell you, but it's a great tool. Now, the reason I like the the, the Guy Fieri stuff is it is granite, and it's like polished smooth. So it's where you're trying to get your traditional mocha it's already there. It's not traditional in material, but it works better, and that's what I believe in, what works better. The next one is a set of kitchen shears, basically scissors. Um, the, the ones that I have actually do have kind of a secondary purpose. They have these little things that you're supposed to be able to open bottle tops with in the center, a little hook in the blade. and uh, My thing with shears is if you're using shears to open a bottle of beer, you should have got your bottle opener to open your bottle of beer shears should be shears but of all the sh- kitchen shears i've looked at these are the absolute best value i found it's made by red yeti wear yes that's a real thing red yeti wear kitchen shears and they have a large handle and i'll tell you what i do with them in just a second you know the most often thing i do with them but the important feature is you want rugged you want sharp um you want big enough to do the job and you want it to be as close to just a pair of scissors in shape as possible. These are, this is what you're looking for. But the number one thing you're looking for with kitchen shears is that they come apart. That they have some way that they come apart. Then you want to make sure you're buying a pair that comes apart when you want them to, but not when you don't want them to. That's what I found with the Red Yeti Wear kitchen shears. Why do you want them to come apart? Number one thing I do with kitchen shears. I cook whole chickens probably once a week. And I get the whole chicken, I lay it breast down on a cutting board, I take my kitchen shears, and I cut the backbone out of it. I'm cutting raw chicken with it. If you have scissors, and they don't come apart, and you're cutting raw chicken with it, again, I'm not the cleanliness freak, but I'm just saying, how sure are you that you got all the little salmonella molecules that are in that little joint out when you cleaned it? Where if you can take it apart and just put it in scalding hot water, or, since these are dishwasher safe, you could dishwash them, though, most things with a blade do not go in the dishwasher if they're mine, because I don't like blades in dishwashers. I like blades and I hand wash them, but I know I can get them clean. You fill up, a, instead of filling your whole sink, when you have something like this, just one thing, you take a little pot or a Tupperware bowl, big enough for it to fit in, fill it up with scalding hot water out of the sink and soap, take it apart, put it in there, let it soak for a bit, and then clean as normal. And that's what you're looking for in shears is the ability to take them apart so that you can clean them well and the ability to cut things like a chicken back, chicken neck. I use these for butchering quail as well when I'm when I'm doing them whole. Um, I, I use them for a lot of other things. They're good for um, if you're cutting, sometimes you're cutting vegetables, you want small pieces. They're good for that. They're good for like chives, if you're cutting chives. though, I usually just use my chef's knife to cut chives, but these will work well for that. But mostly I use them for meat and mostly I use them for poultry. Taking the tips off of chicken wings, uh, any type of thing like that, that's what I use them for, and I really recommend you have a pair. Of, these are a whopping roughly 13 bucks with free shipping on Amazon Prime. The next item I have for you is some cutting boards. I have probably six, seven cutting boards in my kitchen, and I use them all. Um, but what I really recommend for most of your work is an end grain cutting board. And end grain is exactly what it sounds like. If you think of a piece of wood, let's say a, a 2 by 4 uh, you have long grain and you have end grain. If you turn it so you're looking at the, the, the narrow end, you're looking at the rough end, that's the end grain. And the reason you want that is if you take your fingers and put them together like you're praying with your fingers high up, that's how the grain in the wood sits, in little tips like that. And there's tons of it per square inch, right? And when you take your knife and you cut, your very sharp, well-maintained knife that you don't let people touch, that don't know what they're doing, and it never goes in your dishwasher, even if it says dishwasher safe, and you make a cut across that cutting board, the end grain, in just micro uh, world, it's just the end grain is just open a little bit, and the blade's able to flow through there. It cuts better. It cuts faster. Uh, it's le- It does less to dull your knife. And any belief that you have that it's not safe to use a wooden cutting board that you wash after use and you never take like raw chicken, cut it on the cutting board and then cut your salad on top of it without washing it. While you wash your knife and your board, any belief that you have that that board is harboring bacteria or whatever, I want you to do this me. I'm not going to put a link. It's self-education time. Go to Google and type in wooden, wooden cutting board food contamination myth and do your own research. It's Bogus, it's nonsense. I don't have time today to go into the science behind it, but it's not. Now, I have two boards that I have recommended for you today. One is extremely high-end, and if you're going to buy a hardwood end-grain cutting board, it's actually where I kind of recommend you start. It's the bottom end. This is a uh, a product by a company called Top Chop, and uh, it is a reversible end-grain Cutting board's got two beautiful blonde stripes of wood with dark wood. Um, it is for the 24 by 18, which I think is like a good size. You might as well go big with them. 279 bucks. Yeah, it's expensive. Don't worry. I got a cheaper option. Here's my issue. In almost every instance, I've seen good looking end grain cutting boards made out of hardwood that are a hundred bucks or so. They almost inevitably have manufacturing defects. They're not perfectly smooth, they warp, they separate, even when they're cared for well. Now, many of them would be just fine if you really, really, really were a tight ass about taking care of it, if once a week you oiled it, if you never forgot to oil it, right? if you never like oiled the top but not the bottom, if you never stuck it in your dishwasher, all the things that people say they don't do in the reviews, but they do do, but in the end, I've built these. It is a master woodcraft project to build a really nice end grain cutting board. It takes time. It takes talent. It takes skill. It doesn't lend itself well to mass manufacturing. It's one of those few things that, at least for now, people do better than robots. Okay, And when you try to take the price of one of these things down to the $100 price point with hardwood, it just doesn't work yet. No one's skinned it as far as I know yet. And if you ever built one, you'd realize that $300 for something like this, you probably wouldn't build it for $300 for somebody. If somebody gave you the wood and you had all the materials in your shop and you, you took the time and loving care to build something like this, at least your first couple of them, well you're going to end up probably throwing your first one away because it's not going to work. Okay, That's why they're so expensive. But that's why I believe if you're going to buy one, You go to the higher end right away, but you don't have to. Now, what I'm not about is spending $120 for a cutting board and three years later throwing it away. So I'm not about that. I'm also not about buying the $20 cutting board that doesn't really take care of your knife, okay? So the product that you can make end grain that does work with mass production, that does stay together, that gets you well below the $100 price point, is an end-grain bamboo cutting board. Now, there's lots of bamboo cutting boards, and end-grain and long-grain are not the same thing. But these things work. You want a big, heavy-duty one. And I've got one for you today that's made by Top Notch Kitchenware. It's a large, end-grain bamboo cutting board, uh, and it's $69.99 with free shipping. 51 customer reviews, 5-star on Amazon. That includes the idiots. Okay. When even the idiots are giving it good reviews. And when you get more than about five reviews, there's some idiots in there. Of uh, 50, 51 reviews, 50 are five star, or 94% are five star. And 6% are four, which is probably what? One? One out of 51. And, um, this is a good board. I do not own this exact board. Okay, I do not own the Chop Top Chop. I own other boards that are like them. This is the one that I can't say is in my own kitchen. But if I were going to buy something today for this need in my life, to tell you the truth, I would probably buy the top-notch one for 70 bucks and for Go spending almost $300 and use that money to do other things because it will damn well do a good job. There is a certain artisanship with hardwood. There's a certain... As a cook, you like tradition, there's a certain traditional thing. But it's also the case that at times new materials and new methods come along that make better products and we should be willing to embrace those. And in this case, bamboo, when done end and done thick so the board is heavy and doesn't move around on you, is fantastic. Let me give you one other little piece of advice with your cutting boards so they don't slip and move around on you. You know that stuff that you buy that's like rubber that people put in their cabinets that their dishes sit on to keep them protected and all? little thin rubber in a roll? If you cut a piece of that a little bit smaller than your cutting board, keep it rolled up somewhere in your kitchen, and you lay that on the counter, and you set your cutting board on that, when you do your work, it will not move. It will stay put all the time. This will stay put pretty good on its because it's heavy. But it'll help with all your like your plastic cheap ones and whatever. That's all you need to do. And if you don't have that and you are worried about it moving around on you, a damp paper towel, like doubled over, you know, a couple paper towels doubled over, do the same thing. It's wasteful because you throw it away all the time, but it would be another option. So those are just a couple little tips as we go through with this. Both of those boards are linked from Amazon. And again, personally uh, unless I was looking for something that just was look beautiful in my kitchen, if I wanted functionality, I'd go with the with the bamboo. You can't beat this one for review for value. And I know it's hard to even spend seventy bucks on a cutting board when you can go out to you know Walmart and buy like a cheap long grain cutting board for like twelve bucks. But if you care about your knives, you care about the quality of what you're doing, you care about the speed, you care about longevity. You know you can buy this once and you probably give it to your kids. Again though. Oil your cutting boards. They make special oil for this. Do you know what I oil my cutting boards with? Peanut oil. Yep, peanut oil. And I do mine about, probably about once a month, I'll oil my boards. I'll clean them. I'll let them dry. I oil them. I let them dry. I give them one more good wipe down, and they they last a very long time that way. Next up, I don't believe any kitchen is complete without a good quality chef's knife. And you guys know me. I am a guy that owns five hundred dollar and up knives, and I will buy more expensive knives in the future. I believe that when you're buying a knife, if you're buying something that was made, you know, by a, a craftsman that's going to last long enough that your grandchildren could have it, and maybe give it to your great grandkids after you're gone. It's money well spent. And you know, five hundred dollars for a knife when your great grandkid has it, and five hundred bucks will buy a pack of gum, won't seem very expensive. But it's it's not realistic for for everybody. And so what I actually have is three knives for you in today's show notes. A, what I will call a low end, but I believe it is the best low end chef's knife under 50 bucks available on the market today. And that it indeed will do everything you need. It just, it it is what it is. And that one is made by Victor Knox. It's a straight edge chef's knife. Straight edge is what I want with this. It is called the Victor Knox Fibrox Straight Edge Chef Knife, 8-inch, 4,279 reviews on Amazon. Average review, 5 stars, $44.95 with free shipping. It is a great, great tool for the job. Um, I'll give you the other ones too, because I'm going to talk about what I'm looking for in a chef's knife, period. The other one, and and I own all three of these knives, the other one is the 1725 Cutco French Chef Knife, It's a 9-inch knife uh, versus the 8-inch of the uh, Victor Knox. I I like a little bit bigger of a knife, but it would be okay either way. And when you're looking at this one, if you want a smaller knife, uh, Cutco makes a – it's called a petite chef's knife. It's basically this knife scaled down, and that's a great knife too. The top-end one that I would recommend for most people, isn't really that much more expensive than the Cutco. The Cutco – is uh, 144 bucks. 144 bucks. There's some used ones on Amazon right now for like 90 dollars. By the way, cutco's are guaranteed for life. You can send them to cutco and they'll sharpen them for you for free. And if you bought a used one and somebody really damaged it, it's got a lifetime replacement va- uh, warranty. That's Part of why I like Cutco. I don't like Cutco's direct sales business model. I think they sucker a lot of young people, and I think they're going to get rich selling knives. They have them go out and wear out their warm market, but the product itself is fantastic. I grew up in a house where we had Cutco knives. We used them all the time. I butchered, you know, I butchered hundreds of deer with with Cutco butcher knives. I love this knife, but I got last year a knife called the Shun Premier Chef's Knife. This is another eight inch knife. It looks like Damascus, hammered Damascus. What it actually is is a Damascus coating over VG10 uh, Japanese stainless. It is a fantastic, and it is a beautiful knife. Everybody that's used it, when they cut with it, they're just blown away by how it cuts, how it balances. It's 180 bucks with free shipping on Amazon. Uh, it looks like something that would cost a lot more. Is it as good as something that would cost a lot more? Is it as good as a true Damascus $500 knife? No, it's not. But is, is it worth 180 bucks? Yeah. And if you said to me, well, Jack, I need to get a good chef's knife into my kitchen and I can afford any of those. Which one would you buy? Oh, the, the, the shun, the shun, just flat, absolutely the shun. Um, if you were on a budget, I would probably recommend the Victor Knox. And, you know, I also have this policy of certain people, when they want to cook with me, are given certain knives based on their ability and how much I trust them with my cutting tools. So, you know, you get the Victor Knox. If you're ever here and I hand you the knife with a black handle, you haven't sold me yet on the fact that you take care of blades. Uh, But that knife is a damn good knife. And if you needed a set of knives... Then I'd say look at Victor Knox's other knives that match this. Like if you wanted a a Santoku and a boning knife and a paring knife, you could probably, for the same price as the Shun, get a full set of the Victor Knox stuff. So I would make the decision based on what you need. But I believe that 80% of what you do in a kitchen can be done with a chef's knife. And that's why it's on the list as opposed to all the other knives because it's that important to me. Because I use it so much. And then the Santoku uh, pattern is probably what I use for almost everything that I think it's overkill with this big chef's knife, and very seldom do I use like a paring knife or something like that. If I do intricate work or whatever, that's not the kind of cook I am. I have other ways to make food small and look good that we'll talk about in just a second. But definitely you want a good chef's knife. You're looking for something that's full tang. That means that the, the blade is a single piece all the way through the tang of the handle to the end. You want it to be balanced well. You want it to be, with a chef's knife, 8-inch is my minimum. I want an 8-inch knife. If it's my only chef's knife, if I have a big one and a little one, that's fine. But I want bigger ones for bigger jobs, and I want to pair it up with that end grain cutting board. You give me that, and I'm basically, I might be a little slower, but I'm basically food processor human, right? I can do anything. You take my shears away, I can still process that chicken, pull the backbone out of it, no problem, right? That's... That's what I'm looking for in a kitchen knife. Next item is um, a Julianne peeler. And you can get any one you want. I have a recommendation for you. But let's talk about what a Julianne peeler is and what it does. It looks like a Y-style peeler, like you would peel a cucumber with or something like that. And indeed you can. But it has teeth. And when you drag it, instead of peeling, it cuts little thin slivers. So you can be all fancy and artsy fartsy. No, let's let's think about what this does. What it does is it lets us do something like, oh, we could get a uh, sweet potato and uh, zucchini, and we could basically make a pasta-style dish with sweet potato and zucchini because we get these long noodle-like things. Um, when we're making salads using julienne in our salads, allows us to get vegetables that basically hold. Uh, you're, you're dressing better than big, flat vegetables, and they kind of mix through. You can make interesting slaws. There's a lot of things you can do with julienne, but what I really like is the fact that you can create something that is noodle-like in shape and, and function. It's not noodle-like in texture. Julienne sweet potato does not taste like pasta, but it holds things like sauces and seasonings and olive oil and herbs, the way that pastas do. And it can either be used to substitute pasta for many of us that that are on paleo, or you can actually use it with pastas to cut the volume down on pasta. Now, there's some other things that do this. One's called a spiralizer. It seems like it does a good job, but it's a great big honking contraption. It takes up space. I'm very space conscious in my kitchen. I only have so much room. I, can't, I haven't seen that it does better than this. There's some things that, like, you stick a carrot in and you turn the carrot that are supposed to do what that spiral thing does, um, but yet uh, it, the reviews I've read haven't been good. So for now, this julienne peeler is kind of the, the best thing that i found. And when you're doing, like, your Chinese stir fries and stuff like that, this, there's just so much you can do with a little bit of julienne just at the end on the top of food that adds to presentation. And it's not just presentation. Again, these thin strips of vegetable have a way that they hold sauces, seasonings, oils that otherwise they would not. And that gets a better flavor transfer, a better texture, a better mouthfeel. And also what people see is what they taste. Like I was at a, like one of these trade shows one time where the guys were selling like the Pamper Chef crap and all, and most of it all was hype, but he made this salad. And it looked like it had cheese on it. Everybody that ate it thought it was cheese. It was butternut squash. It was basically put through like a, a processing tool that made it look like grated cheese and it was raw butternut squash. But people were convinced it was cheese because their mind told them that it was so there 's a lot that can be done and this tool's ten bucks ten dollars and eighty cents of free shipping. The con Rican Julianne Peeler with uh, blade protector stainless steel handle is the total name of it it's on um, on Amazon, link it to show notes. This is like the best quality tool like this out there. The next tool is actually a peeler, just a standard peeler. This is for peeling your, you know, your cucumbers that you're going to put into a salad. Uh, This is for peeling your carrots, uh, anything like that where you need to peel something. It's actually one of those things that people don't think there's a lot to think about when you're getting a peeler, but... I've used a lot of different ones. You know, my grandmother had the old school, and it was just like a steel handle, and the thing came out, and you ding, 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 and it just took forever to peel a carrot. The one that I use and the one that I recommend is made by Oxo. That's O-X-O, and it's a steel swivel peeler. What you want with a peeler, you want one that has a swivel head, so the head moves. You want it, like, if you examine one in the store, you want to pull on it a little bit, and you want to make sure it's not like something like you can just pop the blade out. You want it to hold strong, uh, you want to have a good, firm handle. That's what this has. That makes peeling potatoes, et cetera, really easy to do. The other thing that I like about this tool is, unlike most peelers, like I talked about the old school ones, the cheap ones, like $2 ones my grandmother had, that you just kind of hold the carrot and peel away from yourself with, this is actually made to peel as though you're using a knife. So if you think about if you had a paring knife in your hand, you were peeling an apple. It's very natural motion. You have your apple in your left hand. You have your knife in your right hand. You put your your pointer finger behind the blade of your knife, and you guide the blade through. If you think about just old-school peeling an apple, that's how this works, except you don't have to be good to do it. And you pull, and you can take an apple, and you can, with this tool, you can peel that apple in a single, long strip peel, which is kind of cool, because it's fast, not because it looks cool, because it's just, and if it does break off, you just keep going. Um, Potatoes, uh, cucumbers, whatever, uh, we bought one. of these. I don't even remember where we got it. But when we got it and I used it the first time, actually the first time I, Dorothy bought it, first time I used it, I'm like, this thing sucks because I was trying to use it pushing it away, and it wouldn't peel for crap. She goes, no, no, that's not how you do it, dummy, and she showed me how he did it. And then the next thing, I, I was in the drawer. She says, what are you doing? I said, I'm throwing the other peelers away because everything we had was scrap back at that time. This was back when we were broke. Okay, it's been a long time since I've been broke. We haven't bought a new one of these yet. I don't know exactly how long ago that was. But I'm thinking 15 years, and they still make this. It's the exact same one. I got it out of my drawer. I looked at the picture on Amazon. I'm like, that's the same damn one. That's how long we've had it. It still peels like the day we bought it. I don't know how the hell they stay sharp. I guess because it's a thin piece of metal that doesn't really ever cut anything, it never gets damaged. It's just really basically pulling peelings off. But we've had that thing, again, since I was broke. And that's when we had a bunch of junk for other options. And Eleven ninety nine and free shipping. The next item I almost wasn't going to include because, I don't know, it's just like it's all I really do with it most days is make tea with it, and I was on the fence about whether I liked it or not because I saw some things that I thought were flaws with it, but it's the French press. And I've looked at some more expensive French presses, some more RC Fartsy ones, better named brands, this one's made by Kitchen Supreme. It's just—it's called the uh, the best coffee press with stainless steel and heat-resistant glass. Okay. Um, when I thought about it, I, I really have no qualms recommending this this product at this point. It comes with some stuff that makes it kind of gimmicky to me. It's got a little stainless steel spoon that's got a little crook in it that can sit on the side of your cup. I, I don't really have much use for that. And it's got another little plastic spoon that's for measuring your coffee or whatever. I have lots of spoons for that. But the reason I thought I didn't like it is it looked like after a few months of use, it was beginning to develop some rust. And a, this is a French plus it's glass, but it has a stainless steel kind of basket with a handle that the glass sits in. Um, and it will pull out, but it's, it's it doesn't fall out or anything, but it can pull out for cleaning. It looked like right where the stainless steel was touching the bottom of it, it had begun to rust. And I'm like, well, that's that's not good. So I looked up the, the, the Brevelle or Chambord or whatever the hell it is, and uh, a lot of people complain that there did rust and show pictures of it rusting. And so one day I'm thinking, well, dummy, why don't you really give it a good cleaning? So I pulled the glass out of it, and what it was is some tea had seeped down under there, And when I wiped it off, there was no rust at all. And then I started thinking about this. And I've bought this thing like eight months ago. And I make about six things of tea with it a day between Dorothy and I. Because it makes about two cups of tea each time. And it's perfect. Nothing wrong with it. Then the other thing is, when you have a French press. So what a French press is, basically, you put coffee and you put tea in it. You can do other things. You can make... You can make almond milk, you can rinse grains like quinoa, you can make fruit infusions. You can do. You can emulsify salad dressings with a French press, which basically means you can make your oil and your vinegar go together and stay together without using an emulsifier like vinegar because of the way it, the action works by forcing it through the screens. But most of us make tea or coffee with it. You take your French press, you put your tea or your coffee in it loose, you put add boiling water, you put the little plunger in that has this little screen filter and a top on, you let it sit for a prerequisite amount of time, and then you push it slowly to the bottom. This forces all your coffee, your tea, whatever, to the bottom and leaves all the liquid on the top to be poured off. You drink your coffee or your tea. Um, This one has three screens it comes with, three little micro screens. And you could save them for extras or whatever. But what I did, I put all three on at once. So you get a perfectly screened out cup of coffee or tea. And it comes apart. So you can clean all of that. So about once a week, I really get some buildup on those screens. And I take it apart and I rinse them off and I put it back together. And it's beautiful. And it's been working for me that long. So I think, you know, eight months, six uses a day on average. It's probably more than most people would use it in several years. I haven't had the grass clack, crack, I haven't seen any problems. 1,500 reviews, f- four and a half stars. Number one bestseller in T-Sets. Uh, and there's a lot of things you can do with French presses. I'll leave it at that because today's show is going longer than I intended. But... This is the one I recommend, link in the show notes. The next one I almost wasn't going to recommend again, uh, cause I just covered it on the Amazon item of the day, but is the Mr. Coffee IDS 77 Coffee Grinder. I call it a coffee spice grinder cause I use it more for spice grinding than anything else. I'll be brief cause I talked about it before, but this product is something I just don't want to not have in my kitchen. And it's, it, it it's so damn affordable. Um, it's 15 bucks with free shipping. And the reason I couldn't leave it out of today's show is as I was thinking about what to put in today's show while I was in my kitchen cooking, you know, I find myself grabbing it and making up a spice blend again with it. So it's just a little black coffee grinder. You throw coffee in it, or in my case, you throw seasonings in it, and you grind it and you make a blended powder. I used it yesterday. So my, my, my nephew Nick's over and he was talking about how he likes jalapeno flavor in his beans, but that makes the beans too hot for his wife and the kids and all. And they were making beans, which I had no interest in. They were like, you know, dump a can in a pot, heat them up beans. So I'm like, yeah, no problem. So I, I pull out some dehydrated jalapenos, a little bit of garlic, a little bit of dehydrated garlic, a little dehydrated onion, a little salt, a little black pepper, put it in there and I made him a, a jalapeno powder. It took me like 30 seconds. Now, when you do that with hot peppers, let it settle before you open it, and be careful how much breathing you do, like deep breathing, until like the air clears, because you get it fine particleized dust of your hot peppers. But that's just an example. Remember that chicken I talked about making? The lemon zest, the thyme, the, the parsley, all that stuff that goes underneath the skin, it all goes in there. I mean, every time I find myself making a rub or a seasoning for something, I pull this thing out and I use it. And uh, so I couldn't leave it out, but I'll let it go for that today. But it's one of those things I think once you once you have it and you start using, you'll start realizing all the, all the different creative things you can do with it as far as when you open your spice cabinet, instead of grabbing chicken seasoning, you say, what do I want my chicken to taste like today? And you look at you know 20 or 30 herbs, spices, and seasonings and options, and you just start throwing stuff together. And then you start to really unlock that creative process we talked about. And that's why I love this tool. The next thing I have to recommend is an electric kettle. Um, again, something I can't leave out because I literally use it every day. You know those six things of tea I make? And the water gets boiled in my Hamilton Beach 4880 electric kettle. Now, um, the one I link to is the most affordable one. It is uh, stainless steel. And they actually have a silver one that's like, I think, 20 bucks, And they're, they're basically all the same, just the color on them. I have the red one. I paid, instead of 27 bucks for mine, I paid $53 for mine to get one in red. You know why? Because Dorothy likes red. My wife likes red. And for all the crap and all the shit she puts up with me, if I was going to get us a kettle and she wanted a red one, she's getting a red one. She, she just likes red for her decoration, her kitchen. Happy wife, happy life. In the end, what I want is hot water to come out of it. As long as the red one does what the silver one does, I'll buy the red one for my wife any day. So I make tea with this constantly. So that's one thing I do with it. Here's some other things you can do with an electric kettle. You want to make the best, easiest hard boiled eggs you ever made. Open your kettle, put, you know, four eggs, whatever you want to boil, but about four is what would fit in here in your electric kettle. Fill it about halfway up with hot water. Sit it there. Turn it on, and it'll shut itself off when it starts boiling. Wait 12 minutes, dump the water out, you'll have perfectly done eggs. And you won't take up a burner on your stove. So that, I mean, that's just one thing you can do it. Here's another thing you can do it. Let's say that you were going to be cooking a lot of different things for dinner, and you wanted to do mashed potatoes. I don't know what you really want to do, we're just going to use mashed potatoes as an example. And you want to do those last. You want them to be just mashed, nice and hot. You don't want to reheat them, and so you've got stuff occupied on the stovetop, but you want them to go a little bit quicker. Well, you take your electric kettle, put a liter and a half of water in it, and bring it to boil, and just let it sit there. When you go to make your potatoes, dump that water in, and then use enough cool water to bring up the level that you need for your potatoes, and you'll get to a boiling point faster, and you'll shorten your prep time. That's... Another example, I make mead because I like mead. And I make wonderful meads that no commercial mead maker has ever made, and I don't want to pay 20 bucks a bottle for it anyway. When I used to make mead, I would get my brew kettle out, I'd make five-gallon batches, and I'd boil lots of water and melt all the honey in. Now I get my electric kettle, I turn it on, I let it get to where it's almost about ready to boil, and I pick it up, and as soon as I pick it up, it shuts itself off, and I use that for my hot water to make one-gallon batches of mead. That's another thing that you can do with your electric kettle. To me, the fact that I can have boiling water on demand, and if I forget about it, nothing bad happens. If I decide I want to make a, a cup of tea, for instance, and I go in the kitchen, I fill my electric kettle, I turn it on, I come in here and I start working uh, to get stuff get going for the day, and I kind of flaked out and I forgot about it, and it's like 20 minutes later, the water's not hot enough to make tea anymore, the kettle shuts itself off, I haven't boiled the water down to the bottom of the pan and burned the pan, started to fire, something like that. I go click it back on. It just takes less time to bring it back to boiling. So the, the fact that, you know, when you can be forgetful in the kitchen uh, and you can have hot water on demand, it's just fantastic as far as I'm concerned. The next one will seem like a little thing. It, it really will until I explain to you why you want them. This is basting brushes. So this is like you want to put a little bit of barbecue sauce or a little bit of teriyaki or some sauce, basting sauce that you've made on that item that you're grilling, or you want to pull something out of the oven and flip it over and hit it with a little bit of seasoned oil, or whatever it is you want to do. Okay. Basting brush. Jack, certainly I can pick out a basting brush without your help. Thank you. Oh, you think so? So the best material for this today, honestly, is silicone. Now... Remember what I said about the bamboo thing. Every once in a while, something better comes along, and we should embrace it and we should use it. All right. So, silicone to me is the way to go. Um, there is a case for the big old school that almost looks like a miniature version of an old, you know, mop for mopping barbecue or whatever, and that's fine. You can do that. But for most day-to-day uses where we're brushing things, what like like another thing we do. I don't do a lot of bread, but occasionally we make bruschetta, which is basically like tomatoes a little bit of green pepper, uh, some fresh basil, olive oil, and garlic, like an Italian salsa basically, and then we make little toasted pieces of bread. Like you take a piece of like a French baguette, you cut it in thin pieces, put a little olive oil on it, and a little bit of garlic, and then you set that under the broiler and you toast it. It's fantastic. Well, easiest way to do that, you take your oil, you chop some garlic up or put some minced garlic in it, and you throw it in your oil, in a little bowl, and then you take your brush you just brush your bread. So there's a lot of different things you can do with a a basting brush. And silicon, again, to me, is the best material that we have for this today. So every silicon basting brush I've ever bought within time, here you're basting it, and the tip, the end, falls off. It falls the F off, in the words of Ron White talking about his tire uh, on his van with Sears, right? It falls the F off. And you're like, you know, this is an expensive thing or anything, but can't somebody make one where it won't fall the F off? Well, Zycom makes a set of four. You get four in four different colors, orange, blue, green, and red, for 10 bucks with free shipping on orders over 50 bucks. So this would be something like an add-on item. Sometimes uh, Amazon has it. It's free shipping, but only if you get the price over. So order something else, get it over that price, you get free shipping. Here's why the ends can't fall off. There's no ends. It's a solid piece of silicon. It's one end, fully integrated, molded, end-to-end, solid handle, little piece that looks like the, like the, the, the where the, the thing would go in for the brushes, but it's all solid, one continuous piece. One continuous piece. 52 reviews, five stars. One complaint, the guy said the bristles fell off. I just bet he did something really stupid. I don't know what, but I just bet he did really something really stupid. I've had them. They don't fall off. Now, this is one of those things that's like a little thing, but then you have something that works. And the way you, to me, I don't need four basting brushes, but 10 bucks is not that much money. So you buy them, and you just put three away. Two is one, one is none, right? Three is for me, four is more, and have four is more. And when you finally wear one of these things out, they'll take you over a year, I bet, throw it away and get the new one out. You know, I mean, that that's how this makes sense. If you want a couple of them, because one might be in the dishwasher or whatever, because these are dishwasher safe, um, you know, or you might be doing two different things and have two of them out, put two of them away. And you've basically created a storage of your, your tools, right? Or put put one in the drawer you don't always grab. So it's there if you need it, but you have ones where you normally get them. But Zycom, uh, they're called pastry, uh, base, pastry basting grill barbecue brush, solid core, Hygienic Solid Coating, four colors, red, blue, orange, green. Um, definitely recommend these as part of your kitchen. Again, 52 reviews, five stars on Amazon. The next thing I recommend is an instant read meat thermometer, digital. It just gives you the number. You can see it. You know what it is. You can switch from centigrade to Fahrenheit, whatever. Um, and here's what I look for in a meat thermometer. I like the ones that fold almost like a pocket knife. They've got the needle, it folds shut so it stores compactly in your drawer, and when you reach in to grab it, you don't poke yourself in the hand. It doesn't get out of calibration, it doesn't get out of whack. The metal ones with the little dial, they have a little wrench where you can calibrate them. That means they can be decalibrated. Yes, I know you can recalibrate. I don't want to constantly recalibrate. I want something that just works. I have two of these to recommend for you because one is a little bit pricey, and I really want you to have a meat thermometer in your home. The pricey one is made by Marsh Cone. It is called the Premium Cooking Meat Thermometer Precise, right? It's the precise one. And it has excellent reviews, 18 reviews. They're all five-star. Probably has, only has 18 because it costs more unless people buy the ones that cost more. Go look at the cheap ones. You'll see how many reviews they have of people saying they suck. They don't calibrate right. They don't stay in calibration. They don't measure right. They take too long. This thing takes a whopping like four seconds to give you your reading. That means when you open your oven and stick it in your roast, you don't have to wait that very long to find out if the temperature's been reached, because if it hasn't, you can pull it out and stick it back in. It's also got a really thin-tipped needle, so unless you need to go in deep, you can leave a very small hole, and things like the smaller pieces of poultry and all, you don't create a big drain for all those juices to come out. Um, I just think it's the best tool for the job. It's 40 bucks, shipping included. So what I did is I went out and said, well, how low cost can we go with this style of, of thermometer and get good enough? And I couldn't get it down super cheap. There's, they make them for 10 bucks, They make them for $14. And every one of those that I researched just didn't handle it, just didn't stand up, like just too many complaints. There's one made by – it's called Perfect Cook. It's an instant reach digital thermometer. It's twenty one ninety seven and free shipping. But this is an add on item, so it has to be with another. To get your free shipping, you have to have over forty nine dollars total on your order. So it's something you'd combine with another product. Um, if if it was like I said, you know, in other instances, if you if you could you know you had the money and you could either buy the really expensive hardwood cutting board or the less expensive bamboo cutting board, I would put the extra money in your pocket, buy other things with it, and buy the bamboo one because for the price-value ratio, it's just a better value, and you don't really need that unless you want it because of how it looks in tradition, etc. Okay, in this instance, it's exactly the reverse. If you could afford either one, I would say get the one by Marsh Cone. It's a better tool. It's going to last a long time, and if you don't think you can justify the extra money, then yes, go ahead and get the perfect cook. This is why this is so important. This is the number one reason people ruin meat. They overcook it because they're not sure and because they not, they're not sure and because they have a phobia of undercooked meat, they cook it a little bit longer, a little bit longer, a little bit longer. If we cook to the temperature we're looking for and get it the hell out and leave it alone, we don't overcook meat. Meat is one of the most expensive things in our kitchen. You know, it really is. If you look at what just a couple ribeyes cost, good old thick big old grilling ribeyes, you know, you're at 20 bucks or more. Well, it hurts. You know, if you screw up a couple of carrots, who gives a damn? You screw up 20, 30 dollars worth of meat because you overcooked it? And ouch. Right? Or you have friends and family over and you have that beautiful chicken that looks done and you pull it out and you cut into it and blood comes out of the, the, the thigh. Right, that freak. Even though you can just put, like, it'll never be the same as cooking it right the first time because now you cut into it. Now people are freaked out, whatever. Or you pull that chicken out, you cut into it. It looks all nicely done, and you know people say what we, what we call the after you start your meal grace. You know what after you start your meal grace is? Thank God for gravy. Right. If people put a little gravy on their food on their meat and they start eating it, and you've cooked it. And after they eat a couple bites of it, they get a bunch more gravy, yeah, it's probably dry, right? So meat thermometers, avoid this. They make, make sure you know you're cooking to safe temperatures, etc. cetera. And I really recommend the one, um, again, by Marsh Cone. It's, it's the one that I own, the one that I recommend, the one that I use. The last product that I have is a food processor. Food processors are awesome things. That there's, they one of the greatest ways in the world to quickly make up marinades, to make sauces, to shred cabbage, to grate cheese in large quantities. Uh, my one of my favorite things in the world to make is pesto, and uh, I mean that's basically basil, uh, olive oil, pine nuts, and Parmesan cheese in a food processor. And I won't go through the full process how to do it. You can look it up. It's not hard. But real fresh homemade pesto. You let me make pesto, and you're like. Oh, it's basically these these elements. So I can make a pesto, and instead of using pine nuts, I can use walnuts, or I can use almonds. Yep, you can do that. You're free. You can be creative. Oh, how about this? You plant arugula in your garden. You end up with more arugula than you can use. Make an arugula with black walnuts for your nut. Or with pine nuts. Either way, that works. There's so many ways. And you can get like, no one says that pesto has to just be arugula or basil. You can take some fresh parsley and put that in with your, uh, your, your traditional, uh, basil pesto. And that works out as well. What do you do with pesto? <sighs> what well, don't you do with pesto? You eat it, that's what you do. But, it's really good tossed on pasta. Remember those, uh, those noodle-like vegetables? Right? You, you take your pesto and you put that on them when they're hot. And you do that with a little chicken. That's awesome. That's low carb, high protein. You're not worried about the Parmesan cheese because we're not worried about having too much fat. And it's not that much fat anyway. Good quality oil like an olive oil. Bang. You can make salsas. Like the salsa with the mocha jete tastes great. But you don't always want to pull that out. You maybe want a chunkier salsa. You don't want to do the grill thing. You want it more like a pico de gallo. Boom. In the food processor, done. There's just so much that you can do with a food processor. And... I went in and out on this one when I was deciding what I wanted. There was a couple things that I wanted. At first, I'm a prepper. I need a big one. So I wanted 14, 15 cups, and I realized it takes up a lot of space. Um, as I did my research anyway, I came to a conclusion that there was a Cuisinart uh, one that was about 150 bucks that was 14 cups and looked great and had incredible reviews. This is where you find the negative reviews that are actually valuable on Amazon. So I find this negative v- review on that one. and I'm about to drop down 150 160 bucks, whatever it is on it. And uh, it says, I have come to the conclusion it cannot be properly cleaned. And remember what I said, if I can see food that I can't get clean, I'm not happy. That's why I don't like the traditional mojajetes. And this lady has pictures, and there's this space in the bottom of it where food just gets in and you can't get it out. And and the response given by Cuisinart from you know China as to how to clean this was just stupid. So I went through all the other negative reviews, and with the exception of like two that were your typical one star morons, like the box was opened or, or something stupid like that. When I see negative reviews like that on Amazon, I'm just like, did you get what you paid for? You know, I, you know, the packaging didn't look the same or some shit, but. With the exception of one or two of those, there was about ten other reviews of people with pictures showing the exact same thing. So I researched it online. It turned out that was the case. So that put me back to do I really need 14 cups? And my other thing was I don't like stuff like this in general in my kitchen because it takes up so much space. So it takes up too much space to leave it out or put it in a drawer. So then we got to put it away. That means when we want to use it, we have to take it out. Now that we've taken it out, it's taking up space. Now that it's taking up space, we have to wash it. Now it takes up space in the dishwasher or the sink. Now we've got to put it all back together and put it away. So in general, I don't like stuff that, that has that model in the first place. But if I'm going to have it, I want something that I can put away, and I can put it away and it takes as less space as possible. So I found the Hamilton Beach 10-cup processor with compact storage. It's designed so the bulkiness of it all fits inside itself. And it's not the smallest thing that you'll ever find, but it's, it's very space conscious. So it's why I chose that one. It's about 56 bucks, 355 reviews, four and a half stars. Uh, and most of the people that use it frequently are happy with it. This is where I think you would have a problem with it. If you're going to be cooking for 50 people on a daily basis, you know, you're looking at a 500 watt motor. It's not that powerful. Um, this is not that powerful. If you're going to use it a lot, like six, seven times a week, it's probably not going to be something that lasts 10 years. But if you're like me and it's like there's a specific thing that makes it worth using this device, then it's probably going to last you 10 years or more. So if you amateurize 10 years over 56 bucks, right, which is the cost of this thing, free shipping on Amazon uh, Prime, by the way, um, you're talking about $5.60 a year. So I, I, I don't have a problem with that. And, it's, and I'm done with the items now. So I want to talk about things like this, or like a food processor or a grinder or, or what have you. Here's like my rule, and my buddy David said the exact same thing. It's amazing how much we think alike. My rule for do I get the grinder out, do I get the food processor out, do I get the Vitamix out, if I don't use it, can I still do it? Yes or no. So if I can't do it, then obviously you get it out. But the answer is yes, I can do this by hand. I can do this. I can you know mince this meat with a knife or whatever. I can chop this up. I can cut it. I can use a, a grater, julienne, whatever. Okay. So can I do it without it? Yes, I can. Okay. Is the job big enough that it will that it will be worth it for me when I think about cleaning up the product and. and Getting it out, cleaning it up, putting it away. So if it's going to save me five minutes, but it takes me ten minutes to clean the tool, to, to you know make sure it's right, to put it away, everything, I'm not getting it out. If it's going to save me thirty minutes, and it takes me ten minutes to clean it, I'm going to get it out. And I'm going to use it. So that's kind of a, like an ending, like way to think about this, you know, overall. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. It definitely went longer than I planned on. I thought I'd just name these products and all, but. I want you to understand why I'm recommending them because, to be honest with you, you know, since I started the Amazon product of the day thing, this comes out like as a shopping list. It's like everything in my kitchen on on Amazon with a link to it, and it is. But I figured you'd want to be able to see it, um, and I want you to know why I recommend it, what I actually do with it, and it is important to me that you know that these products are in my home, in my hands, I use them, and when they're not, I'm finding like a replacement to something you can't get anymore. Uh, I'm, ex- you know, I, I'm, I give you full disclosure with that. And then if I don't really think a brand's important, like pots and pans and stuff, I'll tell you, cause I, I don't see, I don't see it making sense to like say, this is the one you need to get when there's not a, a reason or a justification for it. Um, but with these items and just a good assortment of daily kitchen stuff and some willingness to experiment, you can really, you know, you can make your life better. When you start looking at all this, if you learn how, like I can't tell you exactly how to use all the things you do with a food processor. Jesus, that would be hours and days maybe to know all the different things you can make and do with a food processor. But you can start doing things like, I love my nephew that I was talking about that was here, Nick. He's a great man. He's got two wonderful young girls. He's got a great wife. You know, and they're very committed to eating healthy. And one of the ways they maintain being able to do that is they set Sundays aside and they spend, you know, half their day on Sunday cooking. And they get all their meals ready for the week. And that way, when they come home, they just heat stuff up, warm stuff up. Or maybe, you know, like you said, like we'll get the meat done, but then we'll make a side or whatever. Or all of that's done and we'll just, you know, grill some steaks. And then it's just, it's much quicker. And that way, you're eating a full balanced meal. That's just one example. If, if you eat out four or five times a week and you learn to cook where you really love it, and you go from four or five times a week out to eating out once a week, which is plenty, how much money does that put back in your pocket? And how much more healthy is that for you? Because you care more about your health than the restaurant chef does. They just want your food to taste really good, so you don't bitch. That's what they want. Like there are restaurants that specialize in healthy, but in general, restaurant chefs, you know, if a pound of butter makes it better, a pound of butter goes in, right? If a half a cup of salt in a a large batch makes it better, half a cup of salt goes in. They don't worry about that because what they're doing is they're they're cooking to the person that's gone out to eat for an experience. Well, that shouldn't be a daily thing. So hopefully you really enjoyed today's show. I know I did. If you want to support this show and the work that we do, you can join the Member Support Brigade. All you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more. You'll get a ton of free videos, you'll get a ton of discounts, you will get a bunch of ebooks that if you bought them it would be over 200 bucks. 50 bucks a year or 5 dollars a month to join the Member Support Brigade to help support content like you got today. The other way of course is shopping on Amazon. Go to tspaz.com, T S P A Z. and you'll see the Amazon product today. Interestingly enough, interestingly enough, today's product really isn't uh, one of the ones I mentioned or a product for uh, the kitchen, though it would often spend time in your kitchen. It is a stainless steel growler yeah, it's uh, made by a guy from the audience that, I'll, full disclosure here, sent me a coupon, basically, to order for free off Amazon if I'd be willing to review it. I'm like, do you see my review of the Cato Instant Voyager, Kato Voyager Radio? Cause just because you give me something doesn't mean your review's going to be good, but okay. Yeah, I'll take a look at it. It's awesome. It's awesome. 50 bucks, double walled insulation, stainless steel, double gasket lid. Here's what impressed me about it. Like, I want this to keep stuff cold. So we filled it about a third of the way with ice, and we put it on the countertop, and we put a label on it. And the next day and the next morning, 24 hours, almost all the ice seemed like it was still there. The next morning, like half the ice was still there, and it made it till about 9 o'clock that night, so about 60 hours before there was like little shards of ice left in it, held ice. Main thing I'm going to do with it, um, I keep ice water in my uh, office now, so I don't have to keep getting up and make my work more efficient. I'm trying to drink more water in addition to my teas. But the other thing is when I go somewhere and I want to take some of my home brew uh, or my cider or occasionally I keg a sparkling mead in my keg system, well, I can take this thing. And I can put that stuff in there, and I know you know, if it'll do what it did for three days, damn near. Uh, if I'm going to go over and it's going to be a couple hours, it's going to be carved because it's sealed well. It's going to be cold, and I can pour people that homebrew because I don't bottle anymore except for small batch meat. It's just way too easy. Instead of 60 bottles, you fill one five-gallon uh, five keg. So I really like this product, and I like that somebody in our audience came up with it. It is very well made. It looks very cool, and I'm really enjoying using it. So it is the double-walled insulated stainless steel growler, and you can always see the product today by going to t t-spaz, TSPAZ.com. And if you don't want any of the stuff we talked about today right now, but you're going to shop on Amazon, please go to t t-spaz, TSPAZ.com They do your shopping on Amazon as always, and you'll support our show. Um, with that, I want to wrap up the show today with a song that has nothing to do really with cooking, except you will hear about cornbread in my mama's kitchen in this song. This is a song I've always really loved. It, it, it's how I've always felt. It's called Born Country, and it's by Alabama. And I won't say much about the song. I'll just say I like the song, I like the sound, and I love Alabama. Alabama made me love country music. When I was a young kid, I was into rock and roll. I mean, I grew up in the late 70s, early 80s, and that was the thing. It was rock and roll. And, uh, you know, I had my, my parents' friends and stuff like that. A lot of them listened to country music. And uh, we lived in Florida at the time, and I... would I, you know, the country was like, you know, Merle Haggard and stuff like that. And I wouldn't, I didn't have a refined enough music palette to appreciate people like Merle Haggard yet. I really didn't. Uh, but, you know, one day I'm, I don't remember where I was, but I remember the first time I ever heard Alabama as is, is music. And I'm listening to this stuff and it sounds kind of like rock and roll, but it's country. And it was cool. And I think there are a tremendous number of people my age, a little bit older and a little bit younger that love country music today because of what Alabama did with country music in the 70s and 80s. And I would actually say they are probably the pioneer band of that crossover country sound that didn't, didn't do pop music and call it country like we had come up in the 90s and 2000s, right? They actually did country music, but they made it sound cool. And they brought a bunch of people with them. So that's why I'm playing this for you today. No special messages or anything like that. Just a great old band that I love and I want to share with you. Hope you enjoyed today's show. With that, it's been Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Helping you figure out how to helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
1: Clear creeks and cool mountain mornings, honest work out in the field, cornbread. In my mama's kitchen, daddy's saying grace before the years. Family ties run deep in this land, and I'm never very far from what I am. I was born country, and that's what I'll always be. Like the rivers and the woodlands, wild. I got a hundred years of down home Running through my blood I was born country And this country's what I love Moonlight And you here beside me Crickets serenading What more could two people last for laying here in love beneath the stars? Now, this is where I want to raise my kids, just the way my mom and daddy did. I was born country, and that's what I'll always be. Like the rivers and the woodlands, wild and free I got a hundred years of down home Running through my blood I was born country And this country's what I love Born country and That's what I'll always be Like the rivers And the woodlands Wild and free I got a hundred years Of down home Running through my blood I was Born country And this country's what I love I was
0: Dream.